Exponential Grandparents, Evil, and the Spread of Christianity. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, known all over the internet as Science Mike. This week is kind of a weird show. Most of the questions are about my opinion on something instead of something grounded in scientific facts. So we'll see if it's fun or not in a few moments as we get it started. Hey, Science Mike. Uh, My name is Travis, and I'm calling from Austin, Texas. First, just wanted to say thanks for all you do. Um, Your work with the liturgists, um, this podcast, and the other avenues have just been a refreshing encouragement uh, to me, and I'm sure others like me, so thanks. Um, As a preface to my question, I've spent the majority of my life in the conservative Christian Bible Belt, mostly Southern Baptist growing up, and in more recent years, I've been immersed in the Acts 29 sort of multi-site church culture. I served a two-year term as a missionary in Europe and worked at a Christian nonprofit organization for a while. It's all I had ever known, and I was heavily invested in it up until recently. In the last year or two, I've been in a state of serious faith deconstruction. I'm trying to lean into it and be comfortable with where I'm at, but that's been tough. Not to sound dramatic, but in many ways, it's been an ongoing existential crisis. I'm the kind of person that sees and experiences most parts of life as interconnected. And God, faith, and church community have been not only a foundational part of my identity, but also an integral part of the lives of people around me and close to me, friends, family, and coworkers. So this process of deconstruction has thrown me into a state of internal philosophical chaos because I still don't know exactly what I believe, and external social anxiety, because my friends and family don't know where I'm at with these things. And, to an extent, even my job hangs on my assumed identity as a Christian. So my question to you is, to the best of your ability, based on what you know about yourself, if you had never had your experience that you've so often spoken about and written about in your book, do you think you would still be an atheist today? Why or why not? And secondly, though I know there's not a one-size-fits-all answer or solution here, and that everyone's experience is different, is there any advice you would give to someone who's struggling to muddle through a state of deconstruction and desperately hoping to come into a place of confident contentment in regard to faith and worldview? Thanks again for your time. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Okay, uh, this is a question I've gotten a few times, a few thousand times, actually. (laughs) Uh, And I think it's even been on the show once or twice, but not in quite this uh, spin on it. And I think it's been a while, and since this comes up so often, uh, we should go ahead and answer this question. Uh, Not just because it won in the voting this week, uh, but because so many people ask it, yeah, would I be a Christian if it weren't for that mystical experience I had in 2012, where I heard this audible voice speak to me in the context of the Eucharist, and I ascribed that voice to coming from Christ, and then I, a few hours later, had a very powerful mystical experience where I saw a a bright light and then had some powerful feelings associated with this vision changed my life. And I often get questions from people who are in some state of uh, doubt or deconstruction that word people use a whole lot. Um, Some way their faith is transitioning away from what it was and into something new, and generally the person asking the question doesn't know what that new thing is yet. The answer is, I have no idea what I would believe if it weren't for that experience. Because I think um, what I identify as me emerges from uh, some genetic propensities that are then uh, molded and shaped by my environment. 
And then on top of all that, there comes this emergent property, which is my will and my agency that exerts some influence over how this thing called me develops and grows. But it's certainly not the exclusive or even primary factor in my thoughts, feelings, beliefs, and actions. Okay? So... If I didn't have that mystical experience, I'm not sure I would still be me. I would be some very similar thing, identical in DNA, similar in physique and uh, life circumstances. I'd still be an affluent Westerner. I'd still be considered white by my culture. No, those things would change. But would I be a Christian? I have no idea because that mystical experience is what got me curious again. I was settled on the issue of God before I had a mystical experience. I was a comfortable, confident atheist. And the social stress I felt from atheism was subsiding. I'd told a few people in my life that I didn't believe anymore. The relationships weren't lost, and these were some of the most important people in my life. And once I knew that I wouldn't get divorced, I wouldn't be um, you know, ostracized from my family because I didn't believe the social pressure really started to subside. And I, I found that I was very happy not believing. And then I saw that light. And when I saw that light and I went back and started to examine theology and scripture and all the things we associate with the Christian faith, I frankly found them lacking just deeply, deeply lacking. And that's when I started to study science instead and search for the thing we all call God. And uh, if you follow the podcast, you've heard me talk about this at length. If you've read my book, Finding God in the Waves, you've heard me expound on this idea for 288 pages. But there's this weird thing. There's a lot of people who want to have some kind of faith They had it once, and now their skepticism keeps them from it. They don't want to abandon their intellectual credibility or perhaps can't abandon their reason capacity, their their analytical capacity in order to just believe, and they miss it. And and they don't have a mystical experience to kind of kickstart this process of faith again. Well, I understand doubt and deconstruction to be a neurological condition and not a spiritual one. This, When we have doubt, when we don't believe in God, when we feel distant from God, these are things that happen in our brains. And so I propose, uh, as a very pragmatic person, if you want to feel close to God, you should do the things that neuroscience suggests increase a human's propensity to have spiritual experiences, to have religious beliefs. Now, I can't help you with confidence. I am not a confident believer, but I am content. I'm not very confident in any of my knowledge. <laughs> I've just been wrong too often. I just enjoy learning too much to assume any of my answers are beyond being questioned. I guess I'm confident in my unknowingness, which, by the way, is the first trick. I think you can have a much more contented spiritual life and, frankly, a much more contented life in general if you learn to let go of a need to be so certain about everything, to master the world by making a great map of it in your mind that you call a worldview. I've learned to view my worldview and every worldview is primarily a survival adaptation for an organism living in a social context and not a means for discerning truth about objective reality. That was quite a sentence. I think I may have lost some people there. Every worldview has pros and cons and how it helps you survive in a social context and different advantages for helping you uncover facts about the world. There are things in the human experience that spirituality excels at helping you find and discover and experience. A sense of oneness with others. 
a sense of connection with the origins of all, a sense of meaning and purpose. Spirituality and religion excels at these things. So if if that's what you want, you need to start by accepting some definition for God. So maybe the God you believed in before, kind of a, a personified figure in the sky or in another dimension or omnipresent in this one that made decisions and actions and wrote the Bible and raised Jesus from the dead. Maybe you can't, you can't go there. You can't get all that. Well, okay. What about Einstein? When Einstein said the word God, he was referring to the orderly way in which the universe operates. Well, everyone believes and the, the laws of physics. Everyone believes in Einstein's God. So can you accept that you believe in God? Can you say the phrase, I believe in God, by talking about Einstein's God? That's the reason I wrote an axiom, by the way. Um, God is at least the set of forces that created and sustained the universe as experienced via a psychosocial construct rooted in human evolution and the evolved features of human brains, uh, also from the book. You find some definition for God that you can accept, because then you can say, I believe in God. And since your cognition, since your consciousness is primarily linguistic in nature, the words you use to describe things affect how your consciousness operates and what your beliefs are. So if you can get to that state where you can say, I believe in God, that's going to help. That's going to be step one. And then after you've set that up, Uh, then you start to pray to that God or meditate in the presence of that God or meditate, you know, where you go to that God's presence. And as you do that, you're going to help your brain foster this thing that brain scans show us is very much a field experience, God, not a, not a noun, not a construct, but a, a lived experience, a lived feeling is God in our brains and prayer and meditation will help foster that. And so will um, aligning yourself socially with people who believe in God. But here's the tough thing. It sounds like in your context, many people aren't comfortable if you explore spirituality using different metaphors about God, which is going to aggravate your skepticism and, and foster cynicism. It's important if you want to believe in God that you find people who can support you through an open and honest exploration of spirituality. This is so core to my Christian faith. This is absolutely foundational to the way I understand Christ as incarnated in Jesus. Most Christians today are obsessed with patrolling the borders of a worldview, with making people feel like if they can't accept certain prepositions or tenets, then they are not a part of the faith. And this is nothing like we see illustrated in the Gospels. Yes, Jesus had disciples and followers who were very close to him, but there was a larger crowd that followed along as well. And when you read the Gospels, the expectations Jesus had for the crowd were very, very low. And frankly, (laughs) his disciples were a theological mess. Most of them weren't terribly well-educated Jews, and they missed what Jesus was saying all the time. But what mattered is that they followed. That was the gospel, was to follow Jesus. Paul later came along and had much more emphasis on what you believed, but Christ himself simply said, come follow me, come follow me. That was it. So if you need Einstein's God to make a movement towards God, great. If it's Hindu theology, if it's Buddhist theology, if it's a a vague spiritualism, I celebrate all movement towards love and peace in the lives of people because I believe that God celebrates it too, that every movement towards God's peace is a movement 
that accepts an invitation extended by Christ. And so, my friend, your curiosity, your desire, both to deconstruct in search of truth and to try to foster some understanding of God for peace in your life, I view both of those as an invitation from Christ, Christ who is part of God. (laughs) So lower the stakes. Don't let the people around you freak you out and get you so upset. The thing you knew doesn't work anymore for a reason. You have grown and you are changing. And so the old metaphor doesn't work for you anymore. But guess what? There's always another way to understand the world, to understand the universe, and to understand the source of all which we call God. So start with a metaphor that you can believe. And then foster a spiritual practice of meditation or prayer. And then place yourself in a community that can support and affirm you as you do that. And in time, you will find that once again, God grows a root in your brain, becomes a part of your life. And as that happens, you may find that you become more comfortable with Christian language and imagery. And then perhaps, like me, you will reach a point where regularly in times of meditation and contemplation, you encounter a risen Christ who, unselfconsciously, you can commit to following. Our next question came in via email, and it reads, Hi, Mike. First off, I absolutely love the show and what you're doing. It is currently helping me a great deal in my faith journey, and I truly appreciate the hard work you put into the podcast each week. My question is, would you be able to explain the science behind mitochondrial DNA stemming from one woman, a.k.a. the mitochondrial Eve? As I understand... This is the genetic commonality all humans share, and science points to it coming from an East African woman who lived approximately 99,000 to 200,000 years ago. I have heard of the mitochondrial Eve from a few six-day creationists and wonder if you could break it down and explain how this fits in with evolutionary biology or just give us your thoughts on the science behind it all. I hope this makes sense. An answer on the show would be awesome, but if not, an email would be delightful as well. Thanks for all you do. Please keep up the hard work. Liam. Well, Liam, I think you can tell that uh, you're not getting an email, but you are getting an answer on the show. And as a brief aside, folks, uh, I do get several hundred emails a month that say, uh, if you can't answer this on the show, you know, feel free to just send me an email. And I can't do that. <laughs> if I answered all those emails, there would be no podcast. Um, it would I would have time for nothing else because there's so many. But always absolutely feel free to send your questions in for the show. If you, if you want a higher chance of making sure that you can ask a question, make sure to catch me in an Ask Science Mike Live because I try to answer absolutely as many questions at those events as you can. Now, Liam, I love this question. And uh, let's kind of explore it because we tend to think of our family tree upside down because we think, well, there's me and then I get a mate or a partner and then we have children and those children have children. We imagine this, this branching tree of increasing descendants over time, but that's not always true. Many couples don't have children at all, or you might have children and a few generations out. Uh, at you know, your great grandchildren are few in number, and then your great grandchildren are non existent, right? So, we always branch uh, forward, but we always branch back. Every human alive represents an unbroken line going back 
to a single common ancestor on earth. And in fact, every living creature on this planet, if you go far back, has a common ancestor. So that means, you know, a banana is a distant cousin of yours. A banana, a jellyfish, um, the bacteria that caused your sinus infection, it's all happening in one absolutely giant family. But let's go back to mitochondrial Eve so we don't, we don't you know, pop off people's skull caps today. Uh, think about it this way, right? You've got two biological parents. Now, regardless of how your family arrangement is, biologically, you have uh, two biological parents. And then that means you have four biological grandparents and eight biological great-grandparents. You've got 16 great-great-grandparents, 32 great-great-great-grandparents, 64 great-great-great-great-grandparents, and every single great doubles the number of ancestors, direct ancestors that you have, which means because this creates an exponential growth curve in powers of two, if you go back far enough, your ancestral family tree will eclipse the entire current human population. To give you some idea, if you tack 33 greats onto grandparent, uh, you'll have 8.5 billion ancestors. That is greater than the number of people on the earth today. Now, of course, 34 generations ago, the human population was smaller, so it's less than 34 generations, maybe as little as uh, you know, 27, 28 generations back. And you have more ancestors than there were on people than there were people on the earth at that time. Which, wait, how is that possible? That means there weren't enough grandparents to lead to you, especially not if you go back 200,000 years or even just 99,000 years. Well, (laughs) with enough generational distance, relative starts to mean less and less. And that means uh, ancestral branches often merge as you go farther back. your, Your distant ancestors are related to one another more more directly. Uh, that's just uh, that's how it works. With enough distance, we, obviously that's not incest, but it it is it is distant cousins. I mean, technically, every single couple, if you go back far enough, is a cousin somewhere, somewhere back in time. And so that's how how this happens. But it means that as you go farther back in time, the amount uh, of people who are related to you through uh, chains of parental relationship increases dramatically. And it doesn't mean it's one person. So when we talk about uh, a mitochondrial Eve, we're not talking about a single human female who was the mother of the entire human race. We've borrowed the term from the Bible to honor its cultural significance, but we are not talking about this one human female. Some people imagine like this one woman, either in a biblical creation context, or some people imagine that in evolution, here you have this first female rising up from the missing link, and now she, with a human male, spawns the entire species. No, 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 no. Mitochondrial Eve is the matrilineal most recent common ancestor. That's what it's called in genetic science. The most recent female that all current humans share mitochondrial DNA with. Now remember, mitochondria are the little power factories in our cells. They they produce the cell's energy. And many biologists theorize that mitochondria were originally uh, bacterium that were were captured within a cell and then partnered with it and ultimately were integrated into a cell's function. And so they have distinct DNA from the DNA in a cell's nucleus. And what's interesting about mitochondrial DNA 
is it is almost never subject to the recombination that our normal DNA goes through. You get your mitochondrial DNA from your mother. And so mitochondrial Eve is the most recent individual in the past that we can trace all living humans to. It means it's possible to find older mitochondrial Eves, but they aren't mitochondrial because they aren't the most recent. That also means the current mitochondrial Eve could be unseated if we found a later individual whose DNA was common, mitochondrial DNA was common to all people alive. So this mitochondrial Eve lived in a population of similar organisms, but her lineage was especially successful. Her offspring were involved in the ancestry of every human alive today coming from a population or even multiple populations of humans. Now, of course, if we're talking about Eve, let's talk about Adam for a moment. There is a Y chromosomal Adam. Why Y chromosomal? Well, Y chromosomal DNA goes from fathers to sons. So this lets us see the most recent male ancestor of all human males alive today. We call that figure the Y chromosomal Adam. Remember, neither were solitary individuals. They were simply people whose offspring were very successful and therefore ultimately uh, merged and were found through the entire human race today. And it is extremely unlikely that mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam lived at the same time in the same place or that they ever met. They could have been separated by tens of thousands or or even a hundred thousand years. And this fits in perfectly with the model described by evolution via natural selection. If you go back far enough, all life on earth has a common ancestor but that doesn't imply that all life today came from a single organism. Evolution does not happen in sudden generational lurches, but happens through populations over time. There's not, you know, one day you're this species and the next you're another. It is a much more gradual process that requires populations to uh, divide and to be geographically separated for any interbreeding to cease for a significant period of time, and now you have a divergence into two separate species. This is kind of heady stuff, I know, so I've got uh, three uh, links for you this week in the show notes on AskScienceMike.com that will help you explore mitochondrial Eve. Uh, The Wikipedia page is actually pretty good. I included that. I included an article from the Smithsonian that has uh, maybe a little bit more accessible language. And uh, then a delightful YouTube video that will help you visualize how uh, big family trees get and how quickly. Dear Science Mike, let's assume for a moment that faith is just a way to contextualize the human need for spirituality and find meaning in the face of morality. If the Christian movement is nothing more than that, Why and how then did this seemingly radical, countercultural, grassroots movement that Jesus started blow up to become the most represented religious group on our planet some 2,000 years later? Was it a historical perfect storm at that time in history? Does Christianity quench something in our genetics that humans long for, which made it so much more palatable and desirable than the religions and gods of the day? Related to that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that modern-day ethics and human rights, namely the idea that we should be caring for each other and loving our neighbor, even to a global extent, rather than trying to compete with and eliminate our fellow neighbor, is a notion that in many ways is attributable to the Christian movement. Hence, one could say there's an underlying Christian premise behind the unspoken ethic that much of the modern world tries to live by, secular and religious people alike. Can you comment again on how and why such a statistically improbable, radical, countercultural movement 2,000 years ago could still be so influential in behavior of people all over the globe, even to this day? Thank you so much for your important work. Well, at the top of the show, I mentioned that this week seemed to be questions about my opinion. (laughs) And that was not true of the mitochondrial Eve question. That was a nice, just right down the middle science question. 
Um, but the first question this week was, you know, do you think you'd be an atheist? Uh, I'm not going to tell you the next question because that would spoil it. But it is kind of a more of a philosophical, what's your take on this question? Uh, and here we have a question about history, which you would say, well, that's not a, 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 an opinion question. Well, um, I'm not a historian. <laughs> and I am so much better at digesting and explaining science than I am at history. And it's mainly because there are so many competing narratives in the source material we derive history from. And then there's so many competing interpretations from historians with different areas of speciality that I can become familiar with like what the different schools of thought there are on a given historical issue. But I have almost no ability to discern which one is more credible than the others. It's a mystery to me. And this is, I say this as someone who's becoming very passionate about learning about history. Um, but my, my confidence level just isn't there. Uh, I've made a commitment on this program. I'm going to answer any question that people want me to answer and that I'll do my best to research it. I had trouble finding uh, web resources that uh, I could cite with my understanding. And in that case, I usually will take you to the books I've read to educate myself on a topic, but I'm moving. So my entire library is in boxes. Uh, so I can't see my books, which means I can't remember what books I've read. Uh, so I'm just going to have to kind of wing this one. I'm so sorry for that. Uh, this is my best recollection of the diverse scholarship I've read on early Christianity and why it spread. Um, and, and there's a reason I say early Christianity, because once you get to Emperor Constantine, it's pretty easy to explain why Christianity spread so far so fast the power of empire, once it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, and as the Roman Empire spread and collapsed and, and new empires uh, grew out of its ashes, uh, Christianity was embedded as a significant part of Western thought. Although, remember, in that process, it was deeply Hellenized. Uh, it was influenced by Greek philosophy. What you see in, uh, in, in post-Constantine and even pre-Constantine, early Christianity is an increasing influence on Greco-Roman thought on uh, Christian theology. It's Paul's fault, right? Paul took this religion to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles, of course, adapted it to their own narrative and the way they saw the world. Still centering it on the historical figure, Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this is a new religion. But I'm saying that Christianity has always changed and evolved throughout its history. I don't believe that there's some single undying faith, unchanging faith called Christianity. There's just not a great historical case to make there. But before Constantine, Christianity had a few features really in its favor. One there was a theological impetus to convert people to the faith in Christian teaching. Even before the Bible, there was a zeal to let other people know the good news, to share the gospel. And this was unprecedented in the major faiths that surrounded Christianity when it formed. Judaism does not have a zeal to conversion, right? If anything, it's quite the opposite, a, a, a striving for purity. Um, and Greco-Roman paganism didn't have an evangelistic fervor. You, you didn't try to go create more pagans. And in fact, the point of the pantheon was you could discover a new God and just add that God to the faith. And Christianity was weird for saying, no, 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 no. This is the only way to know God. And this even supersedes the Judaism that it came from. Okay, so that's one thing that, that, that made Christianity uh, spread. Another is that it's an exclusive religion. You can't be a pagan and a Christian at the same time. You know, Paul goes and he talks to people and he says, here's this one God. And it's the only God, the one true God. All the gods that you thought were gods aren't gods. They're not real or they're... 
Uh, they're just lower beings. There's one true God. The God of Abraham and J- Jacob and Isaac and Jesus. So this exclusivity uh, means that as people convert, they leave their old religion. So Christianity gains one, paganism loses one. Christianity gains one, in most cases, Judaism loses one. And a, a third thing that t- the Christianity had going for it is that it uh, fostered social support among Christians. Christians were supposed to care for each other. They were supposed to provide material comfort in times of need. It meant that after uh, battles or wars or diseases, when most people would flee an area, Christians stuck together and cared for each other. And uh, as I recall, those three things are, are deeply significant in why Christianity was successful in the time period that it was in. Now, it was not the only faith based on this kind of zealotry this intense devotion, this um, desire to spread. But, you know, if it grew at a, a, you know, 25, 35, 45% growth rate annually, if it started a few thousand people, that becomes a significant number of people around the time that Constantine converts to the faith. And once Constantine converts to the faith, now Christianity is a truly major world religion, an incredibly influential in the thinking of people in the West. But Christianity is not the only faith that has a drive to conversion, exclusive claims to God, or teachings that foster social support. Islam is exclusive, has a drive for converting others, and intrinsic social support for other followers. And Islam has grown very rapidly since its inception. And Christianity and Islam are, you know, two of the largest and two of the fastest growing faiths in the world. Mormonism has similar structure. And by the way, Mormonism has grown quite rapidly since its inception. And we also have to admit that Christianity has been dramatically more successful in Western civilization than it has been in Eastern cultures. Christianity's foothold is nowhere near as powerful in Eastern cultures And uh, Hinduism and Buddhism have been much more successful, and arguably Islam has made bigger inroads in the global east than Christianity has, especially in the global southeast. So the thing is, all religions rely on very similar cognitive and emotional needs. They all do. And I think you can make a case that humans have a tremendous set of biases that create a predisposition towards belief in God towards a desire for faith, community, and spiritual practice. And Christianity did a great job of satisfying those needs uh, while combining that with a zeal to tell others about it and to care for other people who accepted that faith. And I think that makes it uh, much less statistically unlikely. Now, I I understand many people find Christianity's popularity to be a tremendous... um, piece of evidence supporting belief in God, belief in Christ. And that's fine. I, I would just caution you. What do you, what will you do if Islam becomes the world's most popular religion? Wouldn't that make, wouldn't that provide the same basis for Islam being uniquely truthful or uniquely representing a relationship between God and humanity? That's why I'm, I'm propelled to such humility about my faith, why I avoid exclusive religious claims and why I simply tell people that Jesus is how I experience God. It, it, it sidesteps the issue of like which faith is the one single right faith. It's not a debate I'm interested in having. I'm interested in caring for people in need, the least of these. I'm interested in pursuing peace. I'm interested at setting aside what I feel like I have a right to for the betterment of others. This difficult way that Jesus spoke about in his teachings. A way of peace, a way of love, a way of mutual submission. Is it an exclusive historical fact claim? Not at all. But it is the way that I live my life. And the way that I find God close to me. 
I'd love to see you. We, 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 we meet on the internet all the time this way, and I talk to you and you listen, but I don't get to hear what you have to say. It's very lonely for me. Probably, I don't know if this is lonely for you, but what if we got together? <laughs> Would that be, wouldn't that be even more fun? Uh, three chances to do so with the liturgists. Yeah, we're going to Los Angeles, Boston, and Seattle. September 15th and 16th, Los Angeles. October 6th and 7th, Boston. October 27th and 28th, Seattle. The liturgist gathering, we're going to get together. Uh, Michael Gunger is going to be there. A few hundred other people will be there with you. We're going to talk about the weird stuff we talk about on Ask Science Mike and the Liturgist Podcast. We're going to do spiritual practice together. We're going to go to the table in the Eucharist if you're comfortable. If you're not, hey, that's okay. It's a place that you will not be judged, where every question is allowed, and you can meet other people who are examining the world as fundamentally as you are. You can learn more about that by going to theliturgistgathering.com. Of course, October 21st, I'll be in Dublin, Ireland, for the Rubicon Conference. That's going to be a tremendous experience. And (laughs) I just thought of the president when I said tremendous. Uh, That word has been claimed, I guess. It's going to be a great experience. (laughs) It's going to be really fun. And uh, so you can learn more about that uh, by going to my website, asksciencemike.com, then click on the events tab. And you can find out how to get tickets to the Liturgist Gathering or to the Rubicon Conference. And watch out soon. We will be announcing dates and ticket sales for my uh, UK and Republic of Ireland Ask Science Mike tour, supporting the UK release of Finding God in the Waves. Our last question came in via email, and it reads... Hi, Mike. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how to distinguish between mental illness and evil. For example, it's easy to think of extreme examples of people committing what seems to be incredible acts of evil. Ted Bundy, the BTK killer, etc. However, these people are people we would likely diagnose with something like antisocial personality disorder, which implies the underlying issue is a mental illness that may have been outside of that person's control due to a combination of inherent traits and external circumstances. So, my question for you is, how do we distinguish between mental illness and evil? Is there such a thing as objective evil? Or is it just a convenient term that helps us recognize aberrant behavior? Or are diagnoses like ASPD just convenient ways to categorize a certain type of evil. What a wonderful question. And let's start with something that I think is very important. I think we overstate the correlation between mental illness and violence. Or we inversely state the correlation of mental illness and violence. Statistically, people who are mentally ill are much more likely to be the victims of physical violence than they are to be the perpetrators. Mental illness is a significant health issue facing our society. And we don't do enough to support or destigmatize people suffering from mental illnesses. And there's at least some indication that some of the severity of the symptoms of Mental illness comes from a societal context. Anthropologist Tanya Lerman found, for example, that the uh, negative association with schizophrenia is exclusive to and pronounced in the West, that in other cultures, schizophrenics hear voices that say supportive things and therefore don't have many of the same symptoms that Western schizophrenics have. So we have this very individualistic culture with a strong association with guilt and shame and motivating social cohesion and behavioral control. And it appears to create a chronic stress on our minds. And then when you add outright abuse and trauma into people's life experiences, and we don't cope well, I think without my faith and without parents who loved me unconditionally, 
my life could have turned out very differently. I had a lot of anger for many years from being bullied as a child. And sometimes I had dark and violent fantasies about achieving revenge. But I was lucky. My parents loved me. Was I evil? Was I evil when I imagined walking into a classroom with a gun to take my own life? Or was I a stressed organism trying to deal with trauma? Is there an objective evil? I think there are things that all people universally or nearly universally agree are evil. Genocide, we all agree, is evil, except for those people who continue to commit genocide. But then if we all agree genocide is evil, were the people who first settled or colonized the United States of America evil? Our revered explorers and founders, is slavery evil? Most of the founding fathers owned slaves. And yet we would say that's objectively evil. If there's objective evil, there can be no debate that our interpretation of what is and is not objectively evil has changed dramatically over the course of human history, over American history, and even modern history. The way we view evil is changing. I think for the better. I think it's good. We consider genocide a universal moral evil, and I hope that propels us as a society and a culture to take it more seriously. The harm done by genocide to indigenous and native people, there has, in my opinion, not been significant restitution. Is that evil? What about slavery? If wealth is generational, and we built generation generational wealth using slave labor, and that's largely been aggregated and passed down among white families. How could black families pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Is it evil, objectively evil, that we have failed to settle that score? Is it evil that because of that, the circumstances for black children growing up in America are so dramatically different than the circumstances for white children. Is that objectively evil? I don't know. I just know that it's wrong that we're learning more and more about the universal dignity of the human person. So I take a pragmatic approach. We must continue to recognize human rights are truly universal. That every person has the same right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that that must include some kind of vaguely fair economic share that allows people the chance to be a part of our economic system that allows people to prevent being ground in the gears of our justice system, punished for poverty. Interestingly enough, we have found that the kinds of extremely violent crime, Ted Bundy, etc., seem to come primarily from who? White males, the top of the heap. I have to wonder if what's happening in these cases in some way is a personal internalized expression of the kind of systemic evil that our society perpetuates every day. I can't make a tremendous academic case to that point, at least not yet. I may someday. I don't know what objective evil is, but I know subjective evil. (laughs) And I know that mental illness is something we should treat like illness and not like crime. Now, some people, yes, 
are so violent, so prone to violence, that there must be an ongoing restriction of their behavior and access to others to prevent them from hurting people. We must do that, but we must do it in the most humane way possible. But most violence that I see is not rooted in that. Most violence is rooted in systemic problems and economic problems in uh, the failure of our prison system to rehabilitate people instead to be purely punitive. And purely punitive systems simply create a cycle of behavior. And I think that's evil. I think that's evil. Is there objective evil? I don't know. What I do know is our understanding of evil changes over time. And what matters most to me as a Christian is our understanding of evil is something that propels us to being people of peace and people of justice. People who invite the entire world into the shalom peace that we call the kingdom of heaven. We'll just call this the soapbox episode of Ask Science Mike because I have been on it for almost the entire program. (laughs) You've done it. You've listened to another Ask Science Mike episode. For those of you who are doing this Netflix style over and over, how do you not get tired of my voice or the repetition of the structure of this program? (laughs) Truly impressed. I want to thank the patrons on Patreon for both funding the show, making my life possible, and uh, for doing the work of picking the questions that come on the show every week. Thank you, Andrew Galucky, for your work in pre-production on Ask Science Mike, Greg Nordine for your amazing work in production and sound design, and Jeb Botterford for that lovely theme song. I'm going to try to stick to the weekly schedule for throughout my move this summer, but I imagine we may miss an episode or two. I apologize in advance for that. And I'll try to warn you on Twitter so that you don't find yourself on the subway with no podcast to listen to which by the way you can connect to me on twitter at mike mccarg m-c-h-a-r-g-u-e and on facebook at facebook.com slash mike dot mccarg thanks for listening everybody and i can't wait to talk to you next week